Last week in my sermon, I talked about the lectionary, uh, where it came from, and uh, how over the last now nearly 40 years, we have changed uh, the lectionary for the Eucharist in the Episcopal Church, and indeed for most of the mainline churches in this country, from a one-year cycle to a three-year cycle, where we kept reading the same readings over and over again, and to a cycle now where we read uh, readings over three years, and they're all different. And there's a, 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 something I left out in the course of the explanation, and that is that one of the reasons for doing this, there are a whole lot of different things that people wanted, want to promote, you know, inclusion and uh, plurality, diversity, different views. But one of the things that's maybe even the most important is that it gives the listener at the liturgy a, the great sweep of the biblical narrative. So as you begin to become a student of the Bible, you get some idea of how these connections got made by the writers of the New Testament. Now, in a sense, uh, the Christian lectionary is biased because it is looking at the Hebrew Bible, uh, in a sense, as predictive of the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is possible to read the Hebrew Bible uh, without that. You know, I mean, the Jews have been doing it from the jump. <laughs> so it's perfectly possible uh, to do it that way. But we, we believe that in this narrative we have seen uh, how this is moving forward uh, in culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, which we would say is the unique focus of the divine presence. So I'm going to try to do that today with all three readings from First Kings from the, the Paul's letter to the Galatians, and from the Gospel. And I mentioned last week that in each year of the lectionary, certain readings are emphasized in the epistles and in the Old Testament readings. And the, 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 the year of the threefold lectionary is uh, signified by which Gospel is read primarily. So A is Matthew, B is Mark, and C this year is our patron, Luke. So all of that uh, governs, in some sense, the other, the, the other readings, but not all the time. This is one of the times when the reading from the uh, First Kings actually relates to the gospel. And so it's easier to fit together this grand narrative. So we have two grand narratives. We have one that's moving, our, moving us from the Hebrew Bible to the coming of Jesus, and we've got another one, which is uh, the life of Paul and his apostleship and what it is that he's teaching uh, about the nature of Christianity, God, Christ, salvation, all of those kinds of things. So today we have a story in 1 Kings uh, about Elijah. And I mentioned last week we're going to be reading for another week or two in 1 Kings, or maybe we switch Next week to Second Samuel, I don't know, but it's in this group of prophets. Uh, in, uh, in year C, the emphasis is on the prophets and uh, on some of the both minor, major and minor prophets is the, uh, is the emphasis. In other years, it's other things. So we have Elijah, a very important figure. You know, Elijah was one of the people who was on the mountain at the Transfiguration. So Elijah looms large in the messianic hopes of the people of the covenant. And this week he is 
uh, in Zarephath, and he has gone to see a widow. There has been a drought, and people uh, have no water, and people are hungry. They're out of food. And he goes to the widow in Zarephath, and he says, uh, she said, all I have is a, is a little bit of meal, parched meal and some oil. I'm going to make a cake and eat it and then die. And uh, Elijah says, make me a little cake of that. And so she does. And after he eats, he tells her that uh, you will not run out of this meal or this oil until it rains again. And so she manages to feed her household with what it is that she has over this time. And uh, that's the end of one part of the story. And then the second part of the story is her son suddenly becomes ill and dies. And she takes it like many people in the ancient Near East. And even today, well, my son died or something bad happened. I must have done something to cause this. I must have, uh, it must have been the result of some sinful behavior on my part. And so Elijah, after she remonstrates with him, goes upstairs and stretches him out on the boy, three t- himself out on the boy three times, and uh, the kid is raised, is healed, and gets up. And so we have a, a miracle story. Now I want to say something about the miracles. I'll do it again when we get to Luke. Most people in our era, and probably for the last 200 years since the Enlightenment, they believe that a miracle is something that occurs contrary to the laws of nature. Although the early Christians said there are two books that we must consult to determine what's true about the nature of reality. One is the book of scripture and one is the book of nature. St. Augustine in the 5th century said a miracle is something that has occurred contrary to the known laws of nature. So by the time you get to the Greeks, have anybody ever heard of Epicurus? You know Epicureans? He's the sort of uh, generator or founder of the view that God is absent. God is somewhere else. And God doesn't intervene. There are actually two views. One is God doesn't intervene, which the Enlightenment, the the, founding fathers of this country, most of them were deists. They believed that God made the watch, wound it, and it's ticking away, and God is out of the picture. Then there's another view of this, which is God made the watch, wound it, and occasionally breaks in and Minds it again, okay? So he, he, he interferes with, with things only rarely. So, so that means that the idea of something happening that is contrary to the laws of nature becomes incredible. If you were alive in the time of Jesus, or for that matter, Elijah, they did not believe that God was outside they believed God was inside. I've told you about the thinking about the nature of their, their uh, drawing of, of what the universe looks like and where God is located. So God's in our space. So when Jesus says, for example, in Matthew and elsewhere, the kingdom of God is within you, 
Actually, in the language, it means the kingdom of God is right here. It's right next to you. So the way they think about God and God's activity is coterminous with the way in which human beings interact with one another. So they see the presence of God operating in those interactions. And so when we read the miracle stories in the Bible, uh, that's how it would have been heard by that audience. So when we get to the gospel reading, we're going to hear in, in, the, in the Greek New Testament that when somebody's healed or there is some miracle affected, it's not called that. It's called a deed of power or a paradox. Something that, uh, you know, is hard to understand. It's like two things together at the same time. How do we make sense uh, of that kind of thing? And it's important to, to know this because the, the, produ the producing of a view that says that God is absent and doesn't intervene in the ordinary natural affairs is as ideologically driven as the view that says he is, that God is. So we have to remember that that is the case. This is going very far afield, but there's a book I've talked about that maybe, I don't know, I'm, you're, I'm getting off the bus here, but it's by Ken Wilbur. It's called The Marriage of Sense and Soul. And he talks in this book about, uh, what's his name, Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's a very, very important book. It was written in 1972. And Kuhn realized after he wrote the book that most of the people who affirmatively reviewed it did not understand what he meant by a paradigm shift. They did not know, they, they, they have misunderstood it and it has become so widely believed now that even when he has tried to correct it in reviews and in public statements, they still don't agree. So we should, we'll talk about that in Episcopalian 101 sometimes. We talk about science and religion, which is coming soon. But anyway, think about that in terms of the miracles. Um, anyway, this is a story for the people who read it, the beginning of the, of the grand narrative of the, the signs of the messianic kingdom moving forward. And people who see the, where is this idea revealed to them? Through the prophets of Israel. So in biblical studies, what we're reading about here is something that occurred during the reign of King Ahab, which was from 874 BCE to 852 BCE, 22 years. But the Deuteronomists didn't write this story down until much, much later. But it was, it was passed on in the prophetic tradition. And why the grand narrative is important is the people are going to look at Jesus and they're going to see him within the great prophetic tradition. They're going to understand him in that way and he is going to do things like them so they will put two and two together. That's how they're going to see that and understand it. So we have Elijah and now we go to Paul which is stepping out of uh, sort of the connection between the, the gospel and the Old Testament reading and continuing with Galatians. Last week we had the introduction, uh, perhaps the most terse and uh, business-like greeting in his letter uh, of any of the letters that he's written to any of the churches that he's founded. He doesn't tell them how wonderful they are or what they've done. He moves immediately into a defense of his apostleship because it has been threatened 
by a group of people who've come and said that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about and this is what you have to do if you want to be a real Christian. So he is now today giving us a, bio, a, a sort of biography of what he's gone through in his life. And it's uncharacteristic of him because he doesn't talk that way in many of his letters. But he's going to say what happened when he was converted and what he did. And guess what? What happened when he was converted does not agree with what it says in the book of Acts, chapters 22 through 28. It's a different story, right? And what we see from that is that Luke uh, is at pains 50 years later, 40 years later, to say he was really, he's really part of who we are, and, and, and we're all together, even the Jerusalem crowd and the Gentile, we're all together now. We're, we're moving forward, and Paul got duped in, and it's fine. Well, Paul says he got converted. He first tells everybody that he was ahead of himself in, in the practice of Judaism. He dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, but that God and his grace had moved him to an understanding that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and after he realized this, he said, I did not go to Jerusalem, I went to Arabia. And I spent three years on a missionary journey. Then I came to Jerusalem, and the only person I met with was Peter. Cephas is the same as Peter, and, his, and James. I saw nobody else. And we had a meeting there. Now, here's why this passage has always interested me. The story of Paul's conversion in Acts is one of those conversion stories where a person is knocked off their pins. They have such a dramatic thing happen to them that their life completely changes overnight. And they now have set a course that is completely different than the one they were on prior to that. So I don't want to throw cold water on those kinds of conversion experiences, but my own personal experience is that conversion often occurs in a sort of gradual reflective process. You come to see that the direction that you're going is not the direction you, you need to go in or you want to go in, and you begin behaviorally to make changes and to turn into a different direction. So it's a more, to me, authentic description, since it's so, uh, it doesn't embellish about what happened to him. He changed his mind. He changed his mind about who the Christians were. And he made a decision now that he was going to dedicate his life to preaching the gospel and his understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did to the Gentiles the people he formerly thought were completely outside the covenant and did not deserve our attention. I forgot to mention that in 1 Kings, it is significant because we're going to hear about this again in the, in the gospel. Elijah comes to the widow at Zarephath. She is a foreigner. She's not in. And this is a story for the people of the covenant about God's generosity to the foreigner and the stranger and to the widow, which loomed large in the ancient Near East. If you became a widow, you were kind of now out on your uppers. 
And so God's care and concern extends, imagine, even to the widows and to the foreigners. So we see embedded in the tradition the thing that is now going to become the centerpiece uh, both of Paul's theology and of the Jesus' preaching, which is everybody's in. Everybody's in. So Paul starts to describe what he intends to do, and this reading for biblical scholars is one of the uh, best locations for studying the life of Paul. And it is also a very good place to study the chronology, where he went and what he did. So next week is into the, you know, the heavy bits Justification by faith, participation in Christ, all of the things that uh, are the cornerstones of Paul's outlook about God's work in Christ. So today, Jesus is in Nain. Is that how it's pronounced? Or is it Nain or some, you know, fancy? Nain, but Nain is fine. Nain is fine, okay. Nain, Nain yeah. So he's in Except Nain. Except for Inane. In 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 that's right. <laughs> well, there's plenty of that around here, so we got, yeah. Uh, so, in any case, um, he's in Nain. Now, Nain is near Shunem. And in the Hebrew Bible, the successor to Elijah is Elisha. And Elisha is in Shunem and has an interaction with the Shunemite woman. And in that story, he raises her son from the dead. Elisha. I love it because somewhere in that story, uh, call that Shunammite. <laughs> Elisha, call the Shunammite. <laughs> so here's Jesus in Nain, near Shunam, and he raises the widow of Nain's son, just like Elijah. Elisha, excuse me. And so everybody's going, ooh, this isn't, you know, this is what might be taking place here. Now into the internal study of the biblical narrative and of some biblical scholarship, you might suggest that Luke here has borrowed a famous healing story, which is uh, a story of, of, of uh, a healing that takes place among some healer in the ancient Near East who does the same thing Jesus did. It's one of the few times Jesus raises any, performs a miracle without being asked. He just goes to the beer, lays his hand on the beer, tells the kid to rise, and the kid gets up. So it is a sign of power, and it then says to Luke, and to the people who were the eyewitnesses, this guy is not only a prophet, but he's the Messiah. Because whenever the coming of the Messianic kingdom is, there will these things be, these kinds of signs, these kinds of paradoxes, these kinds of pointing us in a direction where God is on the move, and the values of God's kingdom are now going to become closer. And they're going to be expressed not exclusively or even mainly through any kinds of miracles or any of those kinds of things, but through the love of God and Christ in terms of human interaction.
And they're going to see demonstrated that whenever this power of God is near. I've said this to you before. The, the same word for salvation in both Hebrew and Greek is, all, uh, is also the word for to heal. So it means that these messianic signs are the signs that God's healing power and love is present to human beings. And that if we have a worldview, a cosmology that says God is in, not somewhere else, then it would stand to reason that it's mediated through the creation that God made and called good. And so we're getting set up now as we move through this grand narrative to begin to put two and two together. On Paul's side, we're getting some kind of an explanation of how this all is, even though it gets pretty convoluted. And in the uh, Hebrew Bible and in the Gospels, we're going to get an explanation in a way that is sort of historical in the sense that it brings uh, to bear all of the touchstones of people who can remember in their historical um, world, in the, in the grand narrative of their people, that this is how God has made himself known over time. And that's what we're figuring out as we read the biblical narrative. So I guess what's to be learned from all this for this week as an assignment is that um, maybe you could think a little bit about any conversion experiences you've ever had. There's big ones that we have, and sometimes we have little ones. So we maybe have more than one. And to give thanks for those and what they point us to. And uh, remember that what the Bible says is that God is near, not far. And that means that we should give thanks for that because God will never leave. Amen.